0: Here's a Japanese sandman Sneaking on without you Just an old second-hand man will buy
1: your old days from you He will take every sorrow Of the day that is
0: through, And he'll bring you tomorrow the Videodrome. Long live the good friends of Jackson Elias, an occasional podcast about Call of Cthulhu,
1: horror movies, and horror gaming in general.
0: Okay. (laughs) (laughs) This week I may have blown the subject already, but uh, this week we're going to be talking about David Cronenberg, but more of that in a moment. First, to introduce ourselves, on my right I have
1: Scott Dawood, and Matt Sanderson,
0: and I'm Paul Fricker. Uh, if you want to know more about us and uh, what we do, you'll find us at
2: blasphemoustones.com. So let's let's discuss um, David Cronenberg.
1: Right, um, I've been chosen as the host or chair for this issue mainly because I haven't admittedly seen as many Cronenberg films as my fe- uh, my fellow colleagues here who would uh, who quite happily rave about his films uh, whenever his name gets mentioned in conversation. So, I thought we'd begin by filling in the layman, because I'm, I'm hopefully not the only person in, um, that's listening to this that doesn't know much about him, um, begin with a little bit of background on who the hell is David Cronenberg anyway?
2: Well, I, he's, um, he's uh, quite a long-lived and prolific Canadian film director and writer uh, who's been working in, in cinema since the late 60s, early 70s. And, uh, he started out apparently his academic career uh, in a science program at the University of Toronto, which will make sense when we explore some of the themes of his films because, you know, he, he comes very much from a scientific approach sometimes um he, he in particular i believe he studied you know biology and uh, entomology um and, and yes yeah, so you can certainly see those influences in his films going forward uh, but at some point during the program he he switched to uh english and then from there got involved in in filmmaking and well the rest is history I find it quite <laughs> alarming, realizing that you know they, this this one-time enfant terrible of uh, uh, of horror film making or filmmaking in general turned seventy this year.
0: Yeah, it turned seventy
2: in March,
0: apparently right? from IMDb.
2: Time flies. Yeah. Uh, yeah, admittedly, I, yeah, I, I have been a fan of his since I was a teenager, and I'm not a young man, but still, I, I find it I find it bizarre to think of him as a seventy-year-old.
0: <laughs> That's life, Mr. Dawood. It what is.
2: <laughs> yeah, the, the, the options, Yeah, the alternative's even worse. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: well, thinking of how time marches on and so forth, how is it that way back in the day, um, did you actually discover Cronenberg?
2: Well, personally, um, I... I think I got into Cronenberg the same way as a lot of people of my generation did. His first few films, uh, as good as they were, sort of went under the radar, certainly in the UK, uh, but the film of his that, that made his splash his breakthrough film, Scanners, and I think the, the, the reason that it did so was there is that one famous scene in it fairly early on in the film that involves someone's head exploding. We'll go into this more when we discuss the film itself. Mm-hmm. But that was such an arresting image, a shocking image for the time. I, you know, we've become so used to the media these days you know, having uh, accepted a lot more in the way of violence and gore. You you see worse than that now on network TV, but in the 70s and early 80s you didn't. And this was a shocking image that was uh, plastered in, you know, newspaper articles and on the front cover of uh, things like Starburst and various science fiction magazines at the time. And, you know, certainly, you know, every teenage geek and horror fan in particular I know who saw that image immediately wanted to see the film.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can remember being in school in the seventies in middle school, so sort of age nine to 11, that kind of age. <clears throat> and there would, there was a cinema right at the end of the road, about two or three hundred yards away. In fact, if the cinema was a busy day, it would queue all the way down to my middle school gates. Um, and I was too young at the time to get in to see these films, but the, there were two scenes that were, um, that, that I knew about at that time. One was the, the head exploding, and the other was the bath scene from Shivers. Those were two things that were talked about in the playground. <laughs> uh, the, I think the, where I probably first, I'm trying to remember, probably where I first saw one of those films though was on the, I'm struggling to remember what it was called. It was a late night BBC Two um, film show of kind of Mondo movies, kind of extreme it, cinema. It, it
2: was not movie drama was Alex Cox. Was, was it called it? movie drama? It was called yes. movie Yes,
0: yeah, that yeah. was it. So Alex Cox would introduce the film each week. Um, this was kind of mid-80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, yeah, all kinds of, um, you know, crazy alternative films, horror films and so on were, were kind of screened on that late-night late show. It was marvellous. So I think that was probably the first time I saw the video drama. Yeah, no I,
2: research, well, I, I think I was I was lucky in that yeah you know, I, I got to see some of his films when I was a bit younger than I probably should have. Should have been partly because you know, at the time I was living in Hong Kong and there were no film ratings in Hong Kong, so you know, as a teenager, I could go along to the cinema and see whatever I wanted. And if ever the BB-
0: BBFC needed evidence that films don't corrupt people, they only need to look at you, <laughs> absolutely.
2: I <laughs> yeah. turned out just fine, absolutely. Um, but uh, then you know, what, what really kind of turned things around was I went to boarding school in the UK, and on half turn breaks, I used to go off and visit my, my aunt, and my aunt a video shop in Macclesfield, and um, so <laughs> I, I used to sit there I, uh, at half turn and just watch horror movie after horror movie. And yeah, if was... you're in,
0: living in Macclesfield, probably the
2: best
0: thing to do. <laughs> yes, not uh, for yeah. Gap, the Rainy, Rainy. really. But but yeah. but
2: but yeah, I mean, there's a reason why Macclesfield spawned uh, Joy Division <laughs> and the MacLads. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, but but yeah, I mean, I, I, I saw. Oh, yeah, I, I saw most of Cronenberg's films back to back there in this kind of hallucinatory days, and wrapped it all up by watching a razor head. And yeah, that, that was probably a turning point. That's in a my good life. evening in Matthew. <laughs> yes,
1: and again with the you turned out all right by watching films like this. hand straight. <laughs> uh, a bit similar for me actually. Um, I think I watched. I think the first of his films I saw was uh, was indeed scanners that had been shown late night on Channel Four. Again, with the prospect of, I mean, this is quite a violent film. Let's, let's watch this and see what happens. And then the, oh my, bop, (laughs) Of, of seeing that, seeing that particular scene. So thinking of the man himself, what kind of elements do you think influenced him to come up with the, the quite distinctive and unique vision that he has that he portrays in his films?
0: One of the things, um, that he mentions in one of the interviews is that he's quite influenced by his nightmares one of the nightmares he had was of a couple lying on a bed and a, and a spider crawling out a mouth. Um, and he kind of took that image. Making a spider was a bit difficult to kind of get animated and, and looking cool. So, you know, he went for the, the kind of the, the slug. slug from hell. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that same kind <laughs> of feeling. So I think he, um, you know, influenced partly by nightmares, much as our uh, good Mr.
2: Lovecraft. hmm yeah, mm. but, but I mean, there's a lot more going on there as well. I mean, yeah, there's certainly his scientific background there because, you know, there's this biological organic side to his, his work that permeates it all. And, mm. and the theme of, I, I, I don't think it's really the perversion or corruption of science because he, he doesn't necessarily see, you know, the, the horrific aspects, um, at the films as being undesirable. I, there's, there's a, uh, an interview I read with him a while back where he was talking about, you know, how he thought that shivers, for example, has a happy ending. That, you know, the, 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 the triumph of these, um, these parasites that, that rewire people and, and, you know, bring them back, bring them back to their animalistic, purely sexual natures is actually a desirable outcome. Mm. Um, and he's, he said, you know, in other interviews that he is on the side of the parasites and on the side of the, the organisms um so yeah i i think this is you know very much an influence uh on his films um and from um you know from from a literary point of view i, I think it's no accident that you know he ended up making adaptations of jg Ballard's crash and uh, William oh, Harris's yeah. the naked lunch because yeah, you know, in a lot of ways, his work does feel almost like a fusion of Ballard and Burroughs. That it's got that that sexual, visceral aspect, that that you know, pure outpouring of id that is Burroughs. But at the same time, it's got the clinical detachment and the scientific approach of Ballard. Um, plus, of course, you know, both of their willingness to explore taboo and extreme subject matter.
0: In some ways, similar to Lovecraft, Lovecraft drew on scientific breakthroughs of the day and the exploration that was going on in the Antarctic, the um, discovery of Pluto, and so on in his work. Cronenberg uh, was kind of looking at organ transplants, using computers, biotechnology. It was kind of immersing, yeah, you know, bringing science into his into his work, the science of the day. I think I was, you know, bringing his scientific background, I suppose.
1: So you can think of artificial realities with another of his films that have seen um, existence.
0: Yeah. 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 Um, he's kind of picking up on the things that are happening at the time.
2: But, yeah, I mean, one of the things I like about Cronenberg um, compared to, um, say, yeah, yeah, a good archetype here is Michael Crichton. Um, in, in ways, they're polar opposites because I mean, they both tend to look at, you know, scientific trends, um, or things that are happening in science, but Crichton tends to look at it from the point of view of, you know, what will go wrong? Mankind has no right to play God. You know, they, they, this, these are the horrors that await us if we, you know, if we abuse this particular line of science. Uh, whereas Cronenberg revels in it, Yeah, you know, he, um, sure, he shows us horrific outcomes, but, you know, I, 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 there was another interview I saw with him where he was talking about the fact that, um, you know, because he's an atheist, uh, he doesn't... Uh, believe in the kind of religious aspect of there are some things that man was not meant to meddle with, man was not meant to play God and so on, that, you know, he believes that it's very much our destiny to do so and, you know, to transform ourselves and the world. And, you know, yes, there may be, you know, unfortunate outcomes and side effects of that. We may redefine what it means to be human, but that's not the, you know, the same as, you know, say, Crichton's instinctive revulsion at the idea. Suddenly think
1: picturing the end of Westworld versus the end of Shivers and how, yeah. um, you say Cronenberg thinks that's a, in inverted commas, good ending. Yes. <laughs> yeah. the, the, the mic won't pick up my somewhat bizarrely confused look <laughs> at that point that <laughs> Scott was discussing that. <laughs> Although I must admit, how find, how the thought of find, uh, Scott finding that a happy ending is not surprising. Why, <laughs> why am I surprised? <laughs>
2: But but yes, I I suppose you can say that that he does very much explore the the idea of mad science, but in a a sympathetic way.
0: Well, it's not usually the science that's turning into the malevolent uh, aspect of the no, they I don't think it's
2: some, sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes, I mean, rabid, for example, you know, very much is that you know, rabid um, is not one of the ones we'll talk about in depth. So I'll just mention it in passing. But you know, rabid has this idea that there's experimental skin transplants going on, uh, or you know, transplants in general. There's a young woman has a motorcycle accident, needs a skin graft, um, and. The, uh, the skin graft does something strange. Uh, it basically, uh, produces this, this new organ that goes around and, uh, injects or infects, uh, other people with this kind of, um, uh, it looks almost like an insect's ovipositor. This this organ that sticks out of it, um, and this in turn ends up, um, in fact, much as with shivers, you know, reducing the people that it um, that it it infects into a, a kind of animalistic state. But in this case, yeah, you know, it is much more you know, rabid. Uh, um, I read in one particular review of it,
1: or at least one description of it, that, that both that and shivers were a new take on a vampire. Story in a sense.
2: Mm, yeah, I can, I can see that. Um, but I, I think I, I think Rabbit is much more, you know, explicitly about the fear of infection as mm-hmm. well. Oh yeah, definitely. You know, it um, goes, the, goes with the title, really. Yeah, exactly.
1: Okay. Right. So, thinking of because we've touched on a few of his films now, let's have a look at his filmography. Um, I know that he did a lot of. TV work, at least that's where his career started with, but rather than spend a good long time looking at the various different short films and other um, smaller features that he's done actually look at feature cinema releases that he's produced, or he's directed rather
2: Well, he he started out I mean, even before Shivers, with with two short features called Stereo and Crimes of the Future which set up a lot of the themes that he'd later explore, you know, themes of identity, themes of telepathy, uh, sexual deviation uh, you know, strange experiments resulting in in transformed humans. Um, I wouldn't, I mean, I I saw both of these some time back and I wouldn't necessarily recommend them. I mean, they were very low budget, you know, almost student films. Um, And there were technical problems which meant they couldn't actually shoot the dialogue at the time. So they're all effectively silent. They're both effectively silent films, but with uh, this narration over the top. Um, And uh, I think it was Kim Newman uh, said in a review that, you know, they they prove that it's possible to be both disturbing and boring at the same time. (laughs) Shivers and then Rabbit is very much where where he hit his, his beat. Um, I, in between, he, did, he he wrote and directed a film called Fast Company, which I must get round to seeing at some stage. Yeah, you know, this is the the master of venereal horror, uh, uh, who in the middle of this this run of really strange, disturbing films, produced a film about stock car racing. He does uh, like
0: fast cars, apparently.
2: Yeah. So, uh... But but it, I mean, it just seems like such an odd diversion for him. Mm. But yeah, something he was passionate about, so it makes sense. But, yeah, you know, it doesn't seem to fit in with any of the rest of his uh, uh, filmography. You did, you did
1: manage to sneak in a title that did again come up in my research, So the, the master of venereal horror, the other one being the Baron of Blood, yes. one that he'd also been,
2: also been called. He moved on from there to The Brood, which is, I, I think, quite a personal film for him. Um, uh, he uh, he uh, likened it, I think, to some of the problems that he'd been going through with his wife at the time. Um, and it, it, it is... Um, sometimes referred to as his version of Kramer versus Kramer. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I can see that, actually. Um, But, yeah, I mean, it is about the dissolution of marriage, but at the same time it's about um, kind of biofeedback techniques that result in strange mutations in the human body and um, then the creation of these entities um, I mean I, I won't ruin too much it in case there's you know, anyone who hasn't seen it who wants to
1: that'd be like me with again with the mic not picking up my confused what the hell look on my face and featuring
2: Oliver Reed yeah a, a fantastic performance from Oliver Reed hmm. uh, yeah. as The Estranged Father um, yeah yes highly recommended um so yeah, I mean, from there, he wanted to scan and video drama, which we'll talk about in, in more detail. Uh, he did The Dead Zone, uh, which is, you know, a good adaptation of Stephen King's, um, uh, book, but he didn't write it and it's not, yeah, you know, it doesn't really have any of his personal touches or themes. Uh, it's a good horror film, but it doesn't really feel like a Cronenberg film to me. Um, and then he had his, what, what I think for him was his big commercial breakthrough film, uh, yeah. which was The Fly. Yes.
0: Yeah, if you look on IMDb, and you, you search his name. It's David Cronenberg, director of The Fly.
2: Yeah. And, I mean, The Fly is a masterpiece. I, um, it, It's a good example of why, you know, not all remakes are bad. Um, and the original 1950s film uh, is is entertaining enough. It's got a fantastic ending to it, and it's got some creepy moments. Uh, but, I mean, it's, it's a bit flat and you know, not terribly exciting in places. Uh Cronenberg's film is, it's got an emotional depth to it. It's got this, this doomed love story going on with Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis' characters. Uh, it's got, um, again, his themes of, you know, uh, science, uh, going slightly wrong, but, you know, leading to great new discoveries. Uh, and it's got some of the most visceral body horror you will see in a film anywhere. I mean, even to this day, it still stands up. Um, I yeah, it's little things, yeah. Like as Goldblum's character is going through his transformation in there, the, the scene which stuck with me, and it's just a small bit in amongst the catalogue of horrors, is him standing there in front of the bathroom mirror. I think it is just pulling off his fingernails one by one.
0: I was a fly that dreamed I was a man, <laughs> and now the dream is
2: over. Yes. So yeah, fantastic film. <laughs> uh, and then yeah. It, he moved on to another one of, of my absolute favourites, which is Dead Ringers, with, with Jeremy Irons playing a pair of identical twin gynecologists, one of whom is going through a psychotic break. And uh, I mean, it goes back again to his his theory, his his theme of identity and the breakdown of identity, his theme of, of you know, the, the breakdown of one's personal reality. But uh, again, there are elements of body horror in there, not. Real body horror, but the hallucinations that that one of the the gynecologists is going through when he starts developing his lines of uh, line of gyneco- gynecological instruments for operating on mutant women, uh, which <laughs> it leads to some absolutely horrific stuff.
0: It's
1: not I, a line Ikea are going to be picking up,
2: <laughs> <laughs> or at least if they do. They'll give it an unpronounceable name.
1: <laughs> so you say, their adverts are weird enough. It may not be such a step away from. them
2: and then we move on to the first of his uh, adaptations um, that he wrote himself, uh, which is his adaptation of uh, The Naked Lunch.
0: Yes, yeah, yeah, William Burroughs' Naked Lunch, um, which he said was, uh, if it was filmed as it was written, would cost a hundred million dollars and we'd would be banned in every country in the world.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I remember being quite frustrated when I saw it for the first time. I mean, yeah, I, I was a huge fan of the book, I'm a big Burroughs fan and big Cronenberg fan, obviously. And I went to see it in cinema as soon as it came out. Yeah, likewise. Yeah. And I, I came out of it a bit perplexed mm. because what it wasn't what I expected. I mean, it it is a, a, as a film, it's pure Burroughs, but it's it's sort of a fictionalized hallucinatory version of the events surrounding the writing of of the Naked Lunch. Well,
0: it seems a bit of a blend of junkie and Naked Lunch.
2: Yes. But but I mean a lot of it is based on Burroughs's life. Mm. You know, the, yeah, the whole, you know, our famous William Tell Act and stuff yeah. like that. I mean is, you know, stuff that, that happened in Burrows's life. Yeah, I think
0: Cronenberg kind of did what he could with it. I mean, it's not to say that he made a poor job of it. Oh no. But I mean he, he had to kind of make a an interesting film of it. And I guess he was only going to get to make one Burroughs film. And I guess he kind of drew everything together that he could. I mean, Naked Lunch has got a pretty kind of um, uh, curious structure anyway. So it's fairly easy to sort of slot things in and pull things out and, uh, you know, cut it up.
2: (laughs) Yes. There are only, you know, really a few elements in the film which come directly from the book. And they tend to be there more as, as monologues and, you know, bits of um, bits of dialogue between characters rather than, you know, actual events in the film. Mm. Um, I, and, yeah, so as a result, the first time I saw it, I was quite disappointed and wasn't entirely sure I liked it. And then a few years later, I saw it again with, you know, the the, the perspective of, of time and absolutely loved it. And I, I'll
0: get like, to see it again. I must uh, watch it again.
2: It must be 20 years since the- when did that come out
1: 91 so yeah oh gosh maybe the only interaction I've had with the film is the um, sketch on the Simpsons where the kids go into the uh, theatre to watch it they come back out Nelson looks up at the sign and says that's false advertising
2: there are at least two things wrong with that yeah that was it (laughs) Um, so uh, I mean skipping forward to the next adaptation he did um, uh, was of another one of my favourite books which is J.G. Ballard's Crash um My crash is again another supposedly unfilmable book. Um, and yeah, you know, yes, yeah you know, uh Kronenberg took liberties with it, uh but I think he captured the the essence very much of what the book was about, and you know conveyed a lot of the the ideas that the ballad was trying to convey i mean, there were certain things which got jettisoned because they would have been hokey or were dated, you know like um Vaughan's obsession with having the optimal car crash or the optimal death through a car crash with uh the motorcade of Elizabeth Taylor. Which you know okay. we wouldn't have wouldn't have worked at all in the film, but was absolutely fantastic in the book. But um, yeah, I, uh, that, that and translating the whole thing to Canada instead of setting it in London and around Heathrow. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, all, all that aside, I think it's about as good an adaptation of of Crash as you know one could expect.
1: I remember the the media coverage of it when it first came out I mean this was when I was still a kid and I still remember the news uh, was pretty revulsion about the whole idea of that this the concept of the film that people get off on car crashes and that there was this whole Oh, just general dislike of the whole concept mm-hmm. that was, was yeah, published yeah. through the media at the time. Oh,
2: well, the Daily Mail in particular, you know, was
1: doing their usual "ban the sick filth" uh, campaign uh, well, again with the "this is my surprise face" <laughs> the mic doesn't pick up. <laughs> yeah.
2: But uh, I, mean, to, to be fair, you know, Ballard had experienced a lot of that throughout his career anyway, and you know, there was that kind of reaction to the book when it came out, nineteen seventy or whenever it was that it was written. Um, so. Yeah, you know, it, it, it was unsurprising one of the last very personal films that Cronenberg um, uh, did was Existence which in a lot of ways is, is almost like Videodrome 2.0 yeah I
1: completely agree um,
2: it takes a lot of the the ideas about the subversion of reality and the reprogramming of human consciousness and takes it out of the, the, the television milieu of, of Videodrome and puts it into virtual reality which was a, a very hot topic at the time um, complete with the ambiguous ending. Yes. Then he went on from there to directing uh, a lot of films that other people wrote, you know, in uh in at least three cases adaptations of, of books. They're good films. they again in some some cases they explore the themes that his early films had done, but they don't necessarily, you know, they they don't Really feel like Cronenberg films to me. Um, Spider does to some extent. I mean, you know, it does have that dissolution of reality, and it does have um, it, it does have themes of identity and conflicted identity in it. it. It doesn't have that kind of visceral impact that that I expect from Cronenberg. I and mean, it's, it, it's it's a good mindfuck film, but um, but we're getting on to. Eastern Promises and uh, uh, yeah, history, of history violence, history of violence history and Eastern violence. Promises. Uh, I think are fantastic films, both of them. They they're great thrillers. You know, they 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 engage the brain and you know they they increase the pulse. Um, they they you know smart and dangerous films, but, but they don't feel like Cronenberg <laughs> exactly.
0: If you kind of look back, you'd say he's kind of auteur director. You know you certainly his early stuff I guess that was where he was writing it yeah and then he's taken I suppose one could say he's taken all the the skills and knowledge that he's developed through that and made some really good other films yes maybe he feels he's done what he wanted to do and he's going on to you know use his talents in other directions
1: so definitely History of Violence has that visceral I've been up in the name of the time um, it has that violent aspect that characterises a lot of his other films
2: yeah, but his films fundamentally aren't about violence. I mean, violence they're takes featuring. place in them, but but they they're not explorations of violence in the way that you know a lot of other directors have done. Yeah, you know, violence is a means to an end. Yeah, I, I see these as being something different. Again, a dangerous method is you know completely uh, unlike any of his other work. And personally, I mean, yeah, you he know, got fantastic reviews when it was out. I find it quite a dull film. Uh, it didn't engage me in the slightest. I know mean, I, I like the subject matter, but uh, Keira Knightley's performance uh, took me out of the film every time she was on screen. Uh, she was, you know, in my opinion, overacting so horribly that it just about ruined the film for me. Most recently, there's Cosmopolis, which I still haven't seen.
0: No, me neither. It's on that uh, love film, so I did mean to get around to watching it, but. No. And
2: and this this is one I very much do want to see because Cranberg wrote it.
1: Well, he wrote the adaptation. It's a Larry d'atilio novel.
2: Ah, okay, yeah. right. And
1: oh. uh, no, Don Dom Dillio. Yeah, yeah.
2: Um, I think On he's...
1: Um, I know that he. Um, again, this is one of the bits I did research. Um, that he's quite a well-regarded novelist. Yes. Um, oh, right. Dude. Won the Pulitzer Prize for Underworld. Yes. Yeah. So no, it's definitely it's an it's another adaptation, but. I remember that um, at least one of my colleagues at work went to see it, came, um, was quite excited mainly because of the fact that she wanted to go and see Robert Pattinson in the film. <laughs> uh, I, some people just can't save, really, are they? Um, but then she came back the next morning and when we asked her, how do you like the film? She said, oh, I want demand my money back for the, for the couple of hours of my life I won't, I won't get back. Excellent.
2: Yeah, that's a good sign. Okay, yeah. that's, that's been bumped up my list. <laughs>
0: Apparently, Cronenberg um, was also, um, slated to make a few other films, one of which was, uh, Total Recall. Yes. Um, Paul Verhoeven, um, got the job. Because he's yeah, been interesting.
2: Well, uh, apart from the else, yeah, that's another one of his big influences, Philip Gay Dick. Well, that makes sense, really. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, you can certainly see the Dick influence in things like Videodrome and Existence. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it's I, I, I. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you can see much more. You can see a lot more dick and shivers. But you
1: know. thinking of the bath scene, yes, yeah, that's just so a horrible, so. horrible pun. But
2: yeah, I think he would have been very. More
0: excitingly, movie. I did also read that he was offered the chance to direct Star Wars: Return of the Jedi. Yeah, he declined. <laughs> How would
1: that have been? <laughs> No Ewoks for a start, although if there were Ewoks, terrifying <laughs> ones <laughs> instead of Ewoks.
2: That that may have actually been finally a Star Wars film I liked. Huh. <laughs> I, and, All right. And also, um, yeah, thinking of uh, uh, Verhoeven picking up his cast-offs, almost as it were, uh, he was also originally slated to do Basic Instinct. Hmm. Uh, which again would have been a very different film. Mm-hmm. God only knows what we would have seen when Harry <laughs> Stone flashed us. <laughs> <laughs> the horror. The horror. Yeah, as, as well as directing, he's, he's uh, acted in quite a few films and TV series.
0: Yeah, I, I'm not sure what he's been in, but I have noticed that he is also an actor. So what else yeah. is he, uh, what's
1: the, what's he acted in? Oh, the big, the big one I can think of on the acting front, so one, one of my favourite films, is from Clive Barker. Um, mm-hmm. The adaptation of Cabal. He's in Nightbreed. Um, he plays the psychotic doctor in that, and does a pretty good job, I'd say.
2: Yeah, the doctor by the name of Philip K. Decker.
1: Yes, that's us. Yeah. <laughs> okay. are <laughs> uh, sort of not tying into what we've just discussed. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
2: yeah, yeah, he is a marvellous end there because he's. Cronenberg comes across as having been quite mild-mannered, uh, calm, almost uh, preternaturally calm. Uh, in interviews, Um, Mm. and that manner was absolutely perfect for this, you know, uh, unhinged but utterly avuncular, uh, not avuncular, but a bane Mm. doctor, Uh, and yes, you know, it was a perfect bit of casting. Shall we talk about some uh, some of the films we've watched recently? Indeed, yeah.
1: So if we start in chronological order, (laughs) it's a good enough place to start, and also get to chart some of his developments and how he's learned and changed along the way. Um, the first, well, the three films that we looked at in particular were Shivers from 1975, also known as They Come From Within. They came from within. They came from within. Came from within. I can't read my own handwriting. <laughs> and uh, then the next one, skipping forward a few years, Scanners uh, from 1981, and last of all, Videodrome from 83. So,
2: Shivers. Shivers. Do, do you want to give us the summary then, Matt? The, the, the plot summary. This is one thing I was actually thinking about. What I could say
1: about the film that it's, in terms of story, probably the weakest of all three. That not all, actually all that much happens. That you have a good premise behind it. That you have a couple of people are shaking their heads at me. <laughs> and, uh, you, ha- you have a good premise of that a doctor has an idea whereby he can generate or create a parasite that would function as an organ. That if an organ fails you can put the parasite in, it becomes a re- replacement of that organ. Yeah, good, it's how science can advance mankind, how it can make for a better world, etc, etc, all, all good. Except then things go somewhat wrong and the organ becomes uh, the parasite, which is being sentient, decides to go on a, a spree of share the love, that everyone becomes uh, sexually obsessed, um, incredibly violent, um, in a tower block or a a luxury apartment complex just outside of Toronto. Island paradise. That's it, Starliner Island. (laughs) Um, Where this parasite goes from one person to another, or more particularly, it invades one person, turns them into a parasite-generating machine that then continually spluts out more parasites. They infect more people in the apartment, insert various gratuitous sexual attacks here, there, and everywhere until everyone has been taken over.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think Rennenberg described it as a cross between a parasite and a venereal disease. Mm. And, you know, you, that, that, that aspect of it certainly comes across I and mean, it's spread through intimate contact. Yes,
1: yeah, yeah. particularly the top scene.
2: Yeah. Okay. I, I just watched
0: this whilst I was taking some notes and, and reading up on him today. I had it on in the background because I'm going to have to watch it. Man, it's great. It <laughs> I loved it.
2: Yeah. it's... One one thing I'd like to mention, though, yeah, um, is if sexual violence is a trigger for you, do not, do watch, not this watch this film. I, I I I hadn't seen it for uh, you know, the best part of thirty years, and I went round uh, to a friend's place with a stack of videos at some point uh, to, uh, to to sit okay. down with a few friends, and there were a couple of friends there who found it. The most uncomfortable viewing that they had ever seen. Uh, yeah, they're they, they, they're deeply you know upset by anything to do with raping films, and um, yeah, let, let's not shy away. Uh, Shivers is a very raping film
0: of, of the three that we've looked at. It's kind of your schlock horror exploitation and of end of cinema, I thought of, of the three.
2: It, it is, but I mean, within, at the same time, within
0: the first few minutes, literally three or four minutes into the film. We've got this, this kind of crazed guy beating up this, what I thought was a schoolgirl, turns out was a young woman.
1: Yeah, I thought it was a schoolgirl.
0: she she was was dressed dressed as a schoolgirl. Yes. Yeah. So he's beating her up and then he kind of rips her clothes off after having beaten her unconscious and then proceeds to, to, to cut her open (laughs) and then pour acid into her and then cuts his own throat. Cronenberg doesn't hang around here. He's like, it's straight in. None of your kind of long, slow kind of, pop-boiler kind of build-up. It's just launches straight in with it.
2: Yes. Uh, and and <laughs> as, as, as nasty as that opening is, it only really escalates from that. Yeah.
0: It's not <laughs> like you don't have to wait long, but then it gets
2: worse. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or better. But, um, yeah, I, I, I certainly agree that it's the most exploitative of his films, but at the same time, um, yeah, that it's it's not gratuitous. You know, he, he is building, you know, he's building philosophical points there. He is building, you know, this idea that, you know, th- that somehow it seems to be healthier for man to, you know, tap into his animalistic side. Um, and that fundamentally, you know, he sees all these people at the end, you know, who are infected as being somehow fulfilled or, you know, liberated. in, a, in a, yeah, in, in a purer state of being. Whether or not you agree with that, I mean, you you can't argue with the fact that he's trying to make that point, and he makes it very eloquently. But yes, there is an awful lot of uh, sex and violence on the way.
0: But what about some of these scenes that he manages to throw in? The
2: bathtub scene,
0: obviously. Well, is, the yeah. bathtub scene is is the kind of the classic, you know,
2: well, almost about comical, scene. really. Yeah, I, I I don't know, I. I um, I mean, certainly I remember seeing it as a teenager and finding it really quite disturbing.
0: Yeah, no, I think he does manage to retain a kind of um disturbing quality to these things that in other people's hands would be pretty laughable. Uh, I we, think when we talk about it, it'll sound kind of humorous. When you sit down and watch it, there are scenes that make you laugh out loud if you're a kind of horror fan. Um, but
1: it's still fairly disturbing stuff. i was just mainly thinking the thing as it poked up through the plug hole then kind yeah. of looks around like... Oh, look! The worm's coming out of the hole. And it's, it's, we, it, it looked very laughable. We'd better
2: explain mm-hmm. what the scene is for mm-hmm. people who haven't seen the film.
1: Well, I think if
0: people haven't seen the film, they they should have watched it before. <laughs> we're ruining it for them, aren't we?
2: Yeah, that's spoiler, we alert! spoiler alert. Spoiler
0: alert! If you haven't figured already, there are spoilers for pretty much all of Cronenberg's films in this in this show,
2: but particularly, particularly the three we're talking about in
0: depth. But I've seen them before. Don't spoil yeah. it for me. <laughs> What's your problem? Get on with it. Um so so not only do we have the doctor, you know, with that girl in in the first few minutes, then we cut to um uh, is it Nick? Um the, the kind of main guy um played by Alan Coleman, laying on the bed as his stomach kind of writhes around. Oh yes. No no, in front of the mirror brushing his teeth. Oh, some yes. bizarre uh, kind of toothbrush connected to a hose to the tap. I don't know if this is some kind
2: I, 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 of water pig
0: it's a water pick ok I've never heard of a water
2: pick well they were bigger than the 70s right they, 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 they were basi- we didn't have
0: those in Buckingham
2: <laughs> they, they, they were basically like uh, a water jet that that did the job of um, uh, dental floss
0: right we didn't have that either um, <laughs> but my parents had one did
1: they yes uh, I thought it was just a toothbrush when I watched it
2: no
0: no it's kind of yeah anyway um, and, and then he starts sort of poking his own stomach around like there's something wrong Anything? What? And then later on he's on the Fed. And those are some pretty good special effects, like yeah, I thought. No, mm. I agree. Um that whole I can remember back in the day kind of being pretty freaked out when you had things moving around under people's skin. And I thought that's gonna look a bit hokey now, but watching it again today, that still looks pretty good.
2: Well, I, I think most of the special effects in Shivers actually stand up pretty well. To say it's one of his early films. And a low budget one. Yeah.
1: yeah, well, there were uh, particularly it doesn't come across in the DVD or the video release. But when it was uh, apparently when it was shot on uh, wider or basically blown up onto mm. big screen, yeah. you could see the wire pulling the uh-huh. um, pulling one of the uh, the one that falls down onto the lady's umbrella. Oh yeah, um, you could see that it was well, again one of the gurus that's listed on the IMDb page. You could see the wire pulling the thing across, but it oh. does because it's so small on the TV quality or DVD quality, you don't see it. Yeah, I've never seen this on the big screen. <laughs>
0: I love the way when the, when you've kind of got this um, crazy bunch of scenes in the hotel with people running around and attacking each other, it's kind of a, a free for all. But that guy who who bangs on the, on the young woman's door, who just happens to be cooking dinner, and answers the door with a carving fork in her hand. <laughs> it's like, hello, can, can I help you? And he's like, and it's just like, when are you gonna stab me with this fork? Just get on. With it. <laughs> um, and then there's that, another scene that stuck in my mind was when, um, uh, the, uh, the fellow who's, uh, I think it's kind of blonde haired fellow, um, the doctor, the doctor yeah, the, the, he's running down the stairs into the basement and there's these two girls on like dog leashes, which yes. look like a kind of SM version of the twins from The Shining. <laughs> um, and he just kind of, Backs away as we kind of mentally do as viewers as well, and then just kind of turns around and runs back upstairs. I don't think we get any explanation of what was going on down there. But
2: <laughs> I, I, I think, yeah, that, that, that was the point at which he you know, finally accumulated enough sand loss to go indefinitely insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I
0: think so. <laughs> and another thing he doesn't back away from is portraying this kind of horror happening to children as well yeah. in the lift scene. Kind uh, the, yes. the, the guy gets into the lift kind of drawing over this bloody. um uh hot dog or something uh, and then you know a couple of scenes later there's a ping and the lift door springs open and all three of them kind of get out and assault yeah. somebody
1: well, there's the um when again when the doctor's running away and that uh, he's looking through the peephole in the door and he sees these two naked guy or half naked guys walking down the corridor banging on the doors and then all of a sudden the light turns on and there's the father and daughter that are quite happily sat there in the dark behind him do you want to meet my daughter?
2: That's yeah. pretty freaky. <laughs> it, it's an all-round creepy film. One thing I wanted to mention was um, again going back to the JG Ballard influence. Uh, when I was thinking back over Shivers, one thing it reminded me an awful lot of not 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 for the the kind of venereal parasite aspect, but it was um, uh, Ballard's novel High Rise uh which was one of the first novels of his i read I and mean, it's it's basically about you know an, an all contained you know high rise building uh the shops offices uh, and so on um that um uh that th- th- where you know order breaks down and it it degenerates into this uh kind of primitive society within the trappings of this high rise uh, and yeah, you know, it, it, it's um, it shivers ends up feeling, I, I think, quite a lot like that. I mean, there's different root causes in it, but mm. yeah, you know, again, you know, it's these, these kind of roving gangs going around through the trappings of what should be this ultra modern paradise, mm. reducing it to primitive barbarism. Sounds mm. like dread, dread, uh, dread. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, it's. Rather different, but yes. <laughs> well, I kind of thought it might but, be. Yeah, in- interestingly, there's a film being made of High Rise at the moment, uh, uh, being done by Ben Wheatley, who uh, did things like uh, Kill List, A Field in England. Oh, yeah, um, I thought I recognised the name. Yeah. Uh, Sightseers. Uh, so, yeah, I'm quite excited by that.
0: Yeah, so I think Shivers, um, to say that it's one of his earlier films, I think it stands up pretty well. It's uh, If you're a horror fan, then it's a pretty entertaining watch.
2: But be warned out of... Out of all his films, it's probably the the one that's most likely to actually genuinely disturb people.
1: Mm-hmm. I've lots of trigger warnings in there.
2: Yeah,
0: but, but, but basically, if you're worried about being disturbed, you probably shouldn't be watching both films.
1: Yes, yeah, good in gen- point. In general, yeah. yeah.
2: So let's move on to Scanners.
1: Scanners is probably the of the three the more <laughs> this is a term they use somewhat uh, subjectively the more conventional of his films. Mm. Um, it has mm. the most linear, well, not the most linear, but the most normal plot of the three of them, Well yeah. the most conventional, structured plot. Um, there's not much, apart from the, probably the very last scene, there's not that much ambiguity in the film. It's very much a case of what you see is what you get. Um, that starts off with um, the revelation to the world that there are people that are known as scanners, that essentially are... Or psychokinetic or telepathic, they basically have powers of the mind where they can either read other people's minds, they can create telepathic or um, psychokinetic
2: events. I don't, I don't think it's so much psychokinetic; is the fact that they can bond with other people's nervous systems over.
1: No, uh, oh, but it, uh, it creates a, it creates a similar kind of effect. Yeah. yeah. Um, but there will definitely one instance where they set. Where, when I think um, one scene where the room spontaneously went on fire. Yes. So that's. Maybe bordering onto that territory. Anyway, we're digressing. Really high fever. Yeah, yeah, hot stuff. Um, But that, as these, um, as this company has announced to the world, that yes, this um, subset of humanity exists that have these powers. There's a organised group within that society, um, led by Daryl Revok. Yeah. I mean, played, 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 played by yeah. Mike Ironside. That's it. Yeah. Um, that are systematically either going around and killing other scanners or converting them to his cause. And the company that's um, brought them to the forefront want to remove him from the picture, or at least um, stop him in some fashion. And so another scanner is used that has been on the periphery of Scanner Society until that point. Um, it's brought in to track him down and... Insert the action of the uh, action of the film here, and the um, twists and turns that develop along the way.
2: Yes, I, I agree that you know, it's probably the most. Conventional out of the films that we're discussing this evening, but uh, you know, they, at the same time, there's there's certainly the the exploration of a lot of Cronenberg's favourite themes in there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, there, there is a degree of body horror in there. Uh, there's certainly you know themes of identity, um, not not so much one of subjective reality, uh, although the fact, yeah there is the fact that. Yeah, the scanners can induce hallucinations in other people. There's this one quite memorable scene with uh, two uh, security girls. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, on on the whole, it's it's probably the closest thing to a conventional thriller he's done.
0: Going back to what I said about shivers, I was kind of I, I've I've seen um, scanners before, and I remember the head scene. And then I'm thinking, oh, that's quite a way in. And it's just a few minutes into the film. Mm well, a few minutes, maybe 10, like 10 minutes, minutes into the yeah. film, mm-hmm. um, and we're getting the, the head exploding. So yeah, uh, it
1: does yeah. come somewhat out of the blue as well. It does.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that's probably Cronenberg's contribution to pop culture, really. I mean, I've seen that referenced in TV shows. Man, you look like that dude in Scanners mm-hmm. whose head explodes. <laughs> yes.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those cultural touchstones that you know, everyone knows. Yeah, it's like the head spinning around The Exorcist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, It's a long-time sightseeing scanners as well, and I watched it a few days back. And out of all the the Cronenberg films that I've seen in in recent years, it's the one that I think has aged least well. Um, Personally, I didn't enjoy watching it again that much. Um, Part of it is that um, Stephen Lack, uh, who plays the male lead in it, um, I, I think he made the decision to try to play his character as, as being otherworldly, disconnected, and so on. But instead, he just comes across as completely flat. Yes. Um, and um, it, it feels it feels like you know, a teenager's first attempt at acting. Um, it
0: seemed a little wooden, but yeah. I kind of took it that it was supposed to be. He was supposed to be a bit, uh, like you say, otherworldly, yeah, disconnected. So.
2: Yeah, but, but it didn't right really come that. across that. You know, it, it, it just came across as someone who couldn't act.
0: I mean, I sat down and watched it with, um, with my daughter and it was the first one of these three that I've watched, um, just recently. And, um, yeah, so I, I was kind of looking at them, how are they going to stand up now? So it being the first one, I was feeling charitable towards it. I still enjoyed it. We both enjoyed it. Uh, it stood up pretty well, but actually I think the other two were stronger.
2: So, so what, what did Emily make of it? Is you know somebody was coming fresh to it?
0: I've watched some old programmes with her before, particularly old TV shows, and she seems to have an eye for special effects and sort of period feel of things, and really doesn't like things that feel old-fashioned in the way of kind of shoddy production. Mm-hmm. So I cannot get her to watch um, Star Trek. I cannot get her to watch Blake Seven. <laughs> you know all these classic quality shows they lost, they're lost to her. She doesn't but, know what she's missing. But, um, but I mean, she will watch old films, you know, like, you not know, black and white ones and so on. So, uh, yeah, she enjoyed Shivers and felt it still had quite an impact, I think. Do you mean Scanners? I do mean Scanners. That too. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> did, did, oh, I'm interested. Did you watch Shivers? No, because I, I had it today. It just so uh, happened that was mm-hmm. the one we didn't get. Um, we did watch Video Drone as well. mm mm-hmm. Which I think was maybe a bit, you know? I think she
2: didn't enjoy that one quite so much. Mm-hmm. But um, I th- th- there are elements of, of um scanners which I absolutely adore. Um I it's just little touches. I w- one thing that yeah, it it doesn't really play into the plot at all. But one, you know, little detail that I absolutely love was the fact that you know Daryl Revok is a young man in an attempt to control the uh, the psychic emanations that he was picking up from everyone, and himself with an electric drill. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: very um, much the just, army of the third eye from Delta Green in that sense. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. But, but just trying to let the voices out by drilling a hole in his head. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a fantastic touch. Hmm. Uh, another thing about kind of body horror
0: which maybe isn't quite body horror but we get the whole thing with the unborn child oh, yes. actually affecting him in the Doctor's way to mm-hmm. which is pretty effective exactly. well,
2: let's, let, let, let's explain this though, you know, there's this drug called Ephemeral which runs through the film, which is you know, the first time we we're introduced to it, it it suppresses the abilities of scammers, mm. um, so our protagonist is given it so that the voices in his head go away and it's, you know, initially it's treated as, as almost like an antipsychotic um, uh, and with, you know, as it goes on, it's, it's also used to subdue scanners so that they can be captured without destroying everyone um but then it's revealed you know fairly late on in the film that uh it was marketed as a drug uh as a tranquilizer uh for pregnant women and and the women who were given it ended up giving birth to scammers. yeah um, and yeah what you were talking about with the the unborn child there's a scene where our protagonist is scanned uh by the the um, by an unborn child uh in uh the, wait- the doctor's waiting room. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we should
0: also before before we pass it by I should also mention Patrick McGowan in the film, yes, as, uh, yes. Dr Paul Root, um, who uh yes that's uh
2: Always good to see him. Yes, yeah. it's 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 good to see I mean he kind of counterbalanced uh Stephen Lack's (laughs) you know know, woodenness by you know Patrick McGowan chewing the scenery at some points. He got some pretty (laughs) he got some pretty awful dialogue to deliver, particularly later on.
1: Oh the last couple of scenes in particular. Uh, He did a good job of it though.
2: Yeah, but but some of the dialogue there was just (laughs) embarrassingly bad. But <laughs> can, can I just go back to ephemeral for a moment? Mm, because yeah. it, it, because it occurred to me, particularly you know, um, with the advert that we saw for it, you know, with the, you know, giving it to to pregnant women, that that Crohn's main inspiration for it must be thalidomide. Mm. Uh, that yeah. you know, it, it's, it's the same kind of time period, and you know, thalidomide was the same thing. It was a um, a, a tranquilizer that was given to pregnant women that had unexpected effects on the mm. fetuses. Mm-hmm. Um, albeit rather more horrific ones.
0: Yeah, and looking up, I think I um looked up references to ephemeral, uh, and I came across uh, an entry on Wikipedia, which is a, a whole page, a massive list of fictional drugs and medicines. Fantastic! Yeah, it's a great resource. Just a massive Ooh. chart referring, you know, the the, the drug, its name, uh, where it's drawn from. And um, the, the effects that it has. Huh. So it's got such things as, you know, the old classics like Romulan Ale is on there. <laughs> yeah. Slow-mo, Space Mead, <laughs> and a couple from uh, Simpsons Viagra Agra <laughs> As Homer Simpson says, it gives you hair up there and what you need down there. <laughs>
1: And he's worried of the uh, the loss of uh, main, flick, loss of scalp and penis, and he's worried. About, yes. What was that about my scalp? <laughs> <laughs> oh. And there is a second
0: drug which uh, also works on on the latter of those two complaints, um, which goes by the name of Jamatin. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, wonderful! The Simpsons get away with it
2: somehow. <laughs> yes, it's a kids' show, honest. <laughs> Uh, It used to be. (laughs) Let's move on to the third of our detailed discussions. Let's have our synopsis, Matt. Oh, boy. For those of you that have... (laughs) What's it all (laughs) about? You know what? I want to know the answer to that question as well. So, hang on. Let's just explain. This is Videodrome.
1: Indeed. This is
2: Videodrome.
1: I... A bizarre, surreal series of images that starts off with a vague, um, vaguely like it has a structure and coherency, and then rapidly descends into something else.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: a, a sleazy TV executive picks up on uh, one of his technicians, picks up on what he believes is a rogue transmission somewhere in the world that's showing hardcore, sort of sadistic pornography.
2: Ta- torture, basically.
1: Yeah, torture yeah. porn.
2: Yeah. yeah. Um Believing
0: it to come from Malaysia initially
2: Yes okay. that's it, someone but from they, across the world but, Then realises eventually it comes from Pittsburgh
0: Well it, using an anti-scrambler scrambler
2: <laughs> Yes
1: yeah. like. Deep, Deepest, darkest Pittsburgh Um that yeah, He believes that because he's looking for Some quite niche market Basically anything that will get the critics Up, um, up in arms and sensors raving um, he wants to put it on his um, put it on his channel eighty two. Is it?
2: I think um, uh,
1: Civic TV. That's say Civic TV. Put, uh, put it on their network, and it's then that he meets an advocate of say more kind of the uh, Mary Whitehouse style. Uh, character, except with a rather odd sadistic bend She has the has Mas-
2: masochistic, rather. The, yeah, she
1: she has the Mary Whitehouse um, opinion on, on screen in the interview.
2: Oh, I, actually, no, I disagree yes? with that. Uh, yeah, Mary Whitehouse's objections were kind of moral and religious ones. Um, what what uh, what was her name? Nikki Brand was was saying in the film was much more about the dangers of living in an overstimulated state. Um, she she was looking at it more from the uh the the, the effects of um kind of it, it feeds back into the theme of the film the, the the fact that you know this is changing our perception of reality mm-hmm. uh, through overstimulation uh,
1: i must have tuned out amit at one point there. <laughs> i i', I just remember the impression was that she was the advocate of no let's have everything right and nice and mm-hmm. calm and yeah, no, so no, not, not, i must myself. have missed that bit yeah, but, yeah it's, uh, it's the, his then involvement and so tenuously growing relationship with herself and then things just start to spiral into weirdness as he starts watching more of this um, pirated uh, transmission that he finally realises is called Videodrome and yeah, well what, what did you make of it and what did you think it was
0: about? <laughs> well let's well, not get into what it was about, quite early on he's on a television debate with a Professor Brian O'Blivion uh, who only appears on TV, on TV so when interviewed on television set, he appears on a television set on the, on the stage.
1: A TV within a TV. Uh,
0: and this is the fellow that he eventually tracks down, who um, has apparently suffered a brain tumour, which caused him to create Videodrome.
2: Oh, uh, or was it Videodrome? He was, he was the first victim, he said. Tuner, tumor. Yeah, as, as he says at one point in there, they removed the, t- the tumour from my head, and the name of the tumour was Videodrome. Indeed
0: and there's some there's also a lot about um the television screen being the retina of the mind's eye
2: well i mean th- this this is fundamentally what the film is about as far as i'm concerned it's about the perception of reality through television and there there are certain you know Key things that feed into this. Um, you know, stepping back from the actual content of the, the film, um, I mean, for a start, the character of Brian Oblivion uh, was based very much on Marshall McLuhan, mm. um, who was a media analyst and uh, he was an academic who studied uh, the uh, the construction of media. Uh, he was also uh, one of Cronenberg's uh, uh, lecturers at Toronto University.
0: Well, that quote about appearing on TV only on TV apparently is verbatim him
2: yes yeah um and yeah uh so, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's very much, you know, the, the McLuhan element there. I, there, something else that, you know, it, it, that, that occurred to me through this time around. Um, I meant to do some more digging around online to see whether anyone has analyzed it from this point of view. But the clue for me was the, the name of the company that's behind it all, which is Spectacular Optical. Mm. Uh, because that, that suddenly put me in mind of the society of the spectacle, uh, Guy um, kind of Marxist analysis of, of, uh, kind of media and the perception of reality. Um, and
1: um, <laughs> We're well, both looking very confused at Scott at this point.
2: Well, uh, DePaul, um talks about you know, uh, modern society having been developed in such a way that you know, any authentic social life has been replaced with representation instead. That you know, we, we don't live our lives directly anymore, we live, we live our lives through the representation of life. Uh, and, and, he referred to this as the society of the spectacle. Um, and, um, you know, th- th- this seems to be fundamentally what Videodrome's about. You know, as, as Max Wren, this, this sleazy producer, starts getting sucked more and more into video Videodrome, he can no longer perceive reality directly. He's perceiving it through the, the lens of this, this imposed televisual experience. To the point where you know it ultimately destroys him. You know he, he has no concept of what's real anymore. His life has been taken over directly about this. Um, yeah, I, I, I I'm absolutely convinced that's where Cronenberg was coming from. Yeah, it's,
1: it's definitely a film that's got, got. By the end of it, you just it's whatever the viewer interprets it as what's happening. That's that's it's a film you make of it what you will.
2: But 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 no, I think it is a deeply political film.
1: Oh yeah um, yeah, it's definitely that but so especially with just thinking of the last scene, it's you resolve that and you interpret that as you do.
2: Yeah,
0: It's interesting when the other TV producer that comes to him with a, uh, a pilot for a show, um, she knows about Videodrome, and she tells him it's political, it's real, it has a philosophy.
2: Yes, and, that, and it has something you don't, it has a philosophy, and that's what makes it dangerous. And that's, <laughs>
0: I can remember when I first saw the film, that Ability to tune in to that other—the the guy is kind of fiddling around, and they've got a satellite dish that's rotating on the roof. and He manages to get it and scramble, unscramble the signal, uh, and it was kind of tuning into this like almost alien uh, place that this broadcast was coming from, and they couldn't even locate where in the world it was and what it was, and it was kind of fuzzy. And was it pornography? Was it violence? Was it a mix of the two? There was this weird wall that they're putting the people on and one of them says, oh, it's electrified. I mean, how the hell that would work, I don't know. Um, and back, I think now with the internet, you know, there, you know, there are a myriad of things and we don't worry where things are coming from and there are all manner of things on there. Um, so this kind of thing isn't so striking nowadays. But back in the 80s, before we had all that, I mean, we've talked before how we had like four TV channels. Uh, the idea of having some weird new channel that you could pick up by, you know, retuning your television was Pretty strange. Yeah, quite disturbing.
2: And and apparently that was the kind of nightmare image that started Cronenberg off with writing at this. But you know at the time he was spending quite a lot of time looking around for you know strange images on on satellite TV, and Mm. um, he he was he he was kind of nagged by this idea: what if I end up tuning into something I really don't want to see?
0: Yeah, and and it was the and it's not so much the effect um, of him watching. It's not the content that he's watching that has the effect. It's somehow video Videodrome's um, sort of subliminal effect on him that starts to cause the hallucinations, and quite when the hallucinations begin, he's not really sure. Uh, and he soon descends into this kind of spiral of madness where he's not sure what's real, what isn't. He goes back to see the guy who originally... Um, secured the footage for him and suddenly this isn't a guy we can trust any longer this guy actually fed him the signal
2: yeah um, it all becomes very unsure but, but it's, it's also the way it's represented within his hallucinations as well the fact that he becomes this programmable unit and the way that he's programmed is through video cassettes he and he, de- his gut. Yeah, he develops this, this wound in his stomach that is kind of like a cross between a, uh, you know, a VCR slot and a vagina um that you know whereby these pulsing mass you know fl- flashy videotapes are rammed in and you know then reprogram his reality again you know he's he's you know seeing these new programs and perceiving reality through this this new image that he's seeing on you know this retina of his mind's eye
1: including hiding a gun in there and uh, one guy's hand transforming into a hand grenade
2: yes mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. But thinking of the um again slight tangent thinking of the um the image of picking up uh, television signals, where maybe there aren't any, just thinking of the opening uh, lines from *The Outer Limits*, and we control the horizontal and the vertical. <laughs> yes.
0: I mean, Cronenberg says it's not about TV or networks;
1: it's about people
0: and extremes.
2: Yeah, I though, though you know, it it very much uses the technology of the time as the um, uh, as as the storytelling method, mm. um, the vehicle and, by which they change and yeah. they become extremists i mean, if it, if it were done you know these days, I imagine it would be you know all about YouTube coincidentally, there is a remake apparently in the works now, so um, really, yeah, oh boy, yeah uh, <laughs> uh, yeah yeah i I'll reserve judgment, but my initial reaction is no, <laughs> uh, well, thinking of what we said earlier, some rem- not all remakes are bad, yeah, mean, right. you know, the the fly the thing mm-hmm. you know, so but yeah, it might be good, the odds are against it, um. The Wicked Man. <laughs> I just wanted to push that button while yeah. I could.
0: It's <laughs> right, yes. well, I'll edit that out. Oh. People don't need to be reminded of that. Uh, something I noticed when watching, uh, I think, all three of the films, perhaps, was, uh, I'm not sure about Shivers, uh, but Howard Shaw doing music. Uh, Howard yeah. Shaw, of Lord of the Rings fame. He does
1: he, a lot of work for Cronenberg.
0: Well, he yeah. he's,
2: he's scored every one of Cronenberg's films from The Brood onwards.
0: And apparently Cronenberg directed Howard Shaw's first opera of The Fly in 2008. Yes. Which I'm sure was a spectacle to behold.
2: Ooh. I didn't even know there was an opera. Yeah, yes. Yeah, it's, it's one of the you know, couple of non-film projects that Cronenberg's done. Yeah. Uh, one of my favourite um, film
0: review programmes with uh, Mark Kermode. looked uh, uh, on YouTube, and sure enough, he has a top five of his Cronenberg uh, favourites. He's a big horror fan uh, and he's a big fan of Cronenberg um, in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, his top five, uh, number five, he's got The Brood, number four, Crash, three, The Fly, two Dead Ringers and one Video Drone.
2: Yeah, I'd mm-hmm.
0: uh, pretty much go along with that. Yeah,
1: we were saying previously that if you were to see one Cronenberg film, yeah. it would be Video Drone.
0: Yeah, I think it's, it's the essence of Cronenberg's of yeah. kind of definitive Cronenberg
2: work, really. Yeah, yeah I mean, the, the, the Fly may be the most commercial and, you know, accessible of his films, and, you know, it, it is a damn good horror film. Um, uh, but Videodrome is, you know, the pure essence of Cronenberg. Right, so
1: having looked at the three films in particular, um, Obviously, these are sources of inspiration in one fashion or another for all of us, and I've certainly drawn a lot from the film, the films that I've seen. It's probably more so from the likes of *The Dead Zone*, admittedly, and the more conventional of his films. But I can definitely see Scott as pulling a lot of the more surreal and weird aspects from uh, from
2: his films. Oh, definitely, and and the body horror aspects. Yeah, you know, I use a lot of body horror in the stuff I write, oh, and yeah, you know, that that comes entirely out of my love of Cronenberg.
1: I think, how does his films act as an inspiration or time to any of the gaming that we personally write or play in, or have seen in other game uh, game design, for example?
2: Well, I mean, the, the obvious one for me, as I just said, is body horror. Um, yeah, you know, when I write Call of Cthulhu scenarios, yeah, you know, I, I I tend to use quite a lot of body horror in that, um, and. The certainly, you know, things like the parasites and shivers, you know, the elements of that, you know, have cropped up in a number of things that I've written, um, and and also, you know, Cronenberg's particular approach to, you know, the breakdown of reality, uh, the, the subversion of reality, um, again, you know, I think influences quite a lot of how I approach. You know, madness, you know, insanity in, in cult Cthulhu games and, you know, in, in gaming in general. Yeah, I mean, the whole body horror thing, I think if you can
0: make that into a personal effect on the investigators, um, then it, you know, really brings things home. A great example of that is, um, Kiri Birch's Scenario King in, um, Cthulhu Britannica. I should probably put a disclaimer in there for pimping that book, because I also have a scenario in it. Yeah, I mean, there's been a few scenarios that Kiri has written, um that and Coolerophobia, in brackets, Fear of Clowns, in which, which, you know, he loves a bit of body horror and, mm. uh, does it very well. So one thing I'd like to see is, uh, Kiri writing more scenarios.
2: Yes, yes, yeah, so would I, he's good at it.
0: When it comes to the, the madness side of things, looking at Videodrome and what we talked about previously in the, the seventh edition mechanics—the um, kind of delusion side of, of things. Um, if uh, if the main protagonist of um, Videodrome was a, an investigator, those kind of as he falls into indefinite insanity, I think um there's quite a lot of delusions being thrown at him by the keeper.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so definitely that delusional aspect is the thing that I quite like, especially when trying to run the likes of a King and Yellow adventure, where reality becomes very distorted, where perception is warped, and reality itself starts to break down. That The last, say, 30, 40 minutes of video drama, I think, would definitely be captured very well in that type of style scenario, and that's exactly the kind
2: of weird, surreal thing that I like to run and write. Mm. I, I I think... Another interesting aspect, you know, that, that links in both with the psychological and the, the physiological sides of this, is the fact that, you know, what what Cronenberg what presents in his films is more interesting than, you know, simple death or mutilation. Um, you know, people are changed by the events, their, 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 their psyches are changed, their bodies are changed, um, they become something else. Uh, and, you know, that process of transition may be a horrific one. But fundamentally, you know, it isn't necessarily completely detrimental. It isn't something that... That you know, in looking at it from a gaming point of view, takes the, you know, the the protagonist out of play. That it, mm. you know, it, it is it, it's something that makes things more interesting and disturbing. You know, saying that yes, your character's been eaten by a shoggoth, um, you know, under the right circumstances, yes, can be quite disturbing. Um, saying that you know, your character has a bit of a shoggoth living within him and is, you it, you is see it moving simple. around
0: in, just below the skin on your stomach,
2: yeah, yeah, that's also yeah. good. Yes, yeah, so that it's kind of fusing with you and you're beginning to hear its voice in your head and, and see things through its many eyes appearing across your abdomen. You know that, 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 that takes things in a different direction.
1: There's one thing while we've been discussing that suddenly popped into my head but I thought, now I suddenly realise where the inspiration for this has come from. Um, one of the Vampire the Requiem source books for New World of Darkness has a group called The Moulding Room, which is pretty much Videodrome the role-playing game. Huh. Um, where you start off as um, as vampires that have come across this group that start to use technology, or more specifically, cameras and f- um, videos in very odd ways, and that the more that they start to watch, um, actually, it's very voyeuristic to begin with. Again, replicating our um, film director, um, film director there, uh, and network executive rather, that you can start to warp yourself and warp others. Mm. And that your know, their bodies start to change, and that it's all about ch- um, changing perception, changes yourself, and changes the world around you.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, that's pure video drama. Yeah.
1: And it's also it says in there is no overarching. They're doing this because they're bad guys. It's just they're doing it because they can. There is no evil hidden agenda here. It's just that they do it because they can.
2: Okay, well, that's that's a bit different from Videodrome. Then, I mean, you know, Videodrome, Spectacular Optical were doing it because they had a philosophy. Well, they had a philosophy that shared
1: it, and that's definitely what the molding, the molding room proliferate. But there is no like evil kind of uh, man behind the curtain going. What? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, were, were
0: they malevolent? malevolent?
2: Were they a malevolent force? They they were certainly about control. Um, Either. But they
0: weren't your, your stereotypical evil no, uh, no, no. baddies, and I think that's something I see in Cronenberg's films, which is is good to get into into games as well. We we don't see um, any kind of stereotypical horror um, baddies, and sometimes it's quite grey areas when you're watching it. Quite. You know, who are the goodies and baddies if you mm. want to bring it down to that kind of place
2: level? Yeah. Uh, Scanners is a prime example of that. I mean, yeah. you've, got, you've got two opposing factions in it, but neither of them seem particularly benevolent. No. Uh, but neither of them are entirely malevolent either. They're both acting out of expediency.
0: Yeah, they're both quite shades of grey. So there are kind of moral dilemmas, whereas softening called Cthulhu, the investigators should be wearing the white hats and the cultists, you know, they've got their black hats on and it's pretty clear... Cultures um, are just misunderstood, I don't well,
2: see. So. Yeah. Yes, yeah. 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 Personally, I'm all about the ambiguity. I like mm-hmm. all Shades of Grey. Exactly.
0: I, but coming to Cronenberg's films, I think that's one of the good things when you watch his films, we're used to seeing you know, vampire films and werewolf films and zombie films. Watching Shivers, I was about halfway through, I was struck, this is a bit like these characters wandering through the corridors are a bit like Romero's zombies. But hmm. this is something totally
1: different. Oh, especially this, um, the penultimate scene where they're all gathering, coming over the hill, coming towards yeah. the, uh, yeah. the swimming
0: pool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially once they start to act as a group. Yes. Yeah. Yes, like Romero's zombies, they want your flesh. They and just don't want to eat it. And this is one of the <laughs> one of the strengths of his films. I think you you come to it and you don't really know what to expect. Cause you haven't really seen anything like this before. Yes. It doesn't it's not like you can watch um, shivers and Video and scanners and say, oh, you know, they're a bit like X. Yeah, I find it hard to say they're a bit like something else.
2: Yeah, I think this is one of the things that attracted me to Cronenberg so much as a teenager that he presented me a vision of the world that I've just never seen anywhere else. Yeah, and but I. I say saying that, I mean, yeah, as I've said before, I can see a lot of Ballard and Burroughs in there, and you know, Burroughs in particular, you know, even in scanners, there's. But these you know, people weren't making films. Oh yeah, as as filmmaker, as a filmmaker, he is, you know, entirely original, um, and you know, even then, you know, there's enough of himself in there that he can differentiate himself from Burroughs. Because mm.
0: if you look at a lot of the content, you know, we see that kind of content in. Uh, you know the kind of violent or sexual content we see it in slasher films and we see it in other horror films, but in Cronenberg's hands, it's something quite different.
2: Yes, what makes him dangerous is that
0: he's got a philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, what else can we take from it and, and put into games? I think.
2: Well, I, I think one thing we could do is is look at the links between you know the, his themes and Lovecraft's themes, and you know look at how you know Cronenberg's approach could inform. Some Lovecraftian elements in Call of Cthulhu. I, mean, you know, for example, you know, his approach to, you know, science as a, a transformative element and, you uh, know, the, the 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 effects that you know these these biochemical reactions have on people. You know, apply that to, you know, say a scenario involving the Mego mm. and some of the, mm. some of the some of the experiments they're doing. All the uh, ones. Yeah. And, uh, I'll mention this in passing because it's actually something I've done in this scenario, but, uh, um, mixing up the, the parasites from shivers with, uh, from beyond. Yeah. Because, you know, from beyond, you've got all these, these kind of elements, you know, all these kind of, these, these entities, uh, from this, this superimposed dimension moving through that, um I the film version of From Beyond has
1: a very sexual bent to it as it well. It does.
2: Yeah. So, yes, yeah, I mean that's something I've certainly riffed off at times. Mm. I can certainly see, you know, elements of, you know, some of Cronenberg's uh, themes and, you know, even things like, you know, uh, Reanimator, Cool Air, um, again, you know, it's, it's about, uh, scientists who, you know, do things, you know, push things that are, uh, that in anyone else's hands would be, you know, against nature. But Lovecraft, like Cronenberg, took a dispassionate view, and it wasn't so much that these things were against nature, it's just that they had perhaps unintended consequences.
0: Hmm. I think also we can learn from Cronenberg, another thing we can get is uh, his kind of sense of pacing and action. I mean, something I've mentioned several times it's, is how he kind of cuts to the chase very quickly. So yes. we don't have this long, slow build up, which typically I often do in my games, a, a kind of long, slow build up to, you know, dramatic action and, and, um, so on. You know, we're, we're getting it full in the face in the first few minutes and then there's kind of picking up the pieces. Or picking the pieces off your face, the guy's face off. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That can be difficult to do in a game because often you can end up with a, you know, a whole bunch of dead investigators, you know, after five minutes of flight. but you yeah, know, who's worried about that? It's
2: called Cthulhu, so. <laughs> no, um, that's something I do a lot as well. I I, I love starting with a big bang and then you know, leaving people to sort out the bits after.
1: Yeah, in, in media res. Yeah. yeah, right. I think that brings us to the conclusion of our discussion on Cronenberg. We've certainly had quite an in-depth look at the three films, and I've certainly found them an experience. Definitely, <laughs> um, watch, yes. watching them again. We'll, we'll need to get you watching some of the others as well. I, I want to see Rabbit. It's been on my list of films I want to see, see for a long, long time, well, but I haven't I'll, seen I'll it. I'll hook you up with a copy. Yeah, you're good. All right. Otherwise, though, um, say so definitely if you're interested in the macabre, the frankly disturbing, weird and surreal, then definitely check out these films and hope you enjoy them as much as we did. Um, otherwise, um, that brings our discussion to a close for the evening. Say so we are the good friends of Jackson Elias, taking you out of the world of David Cronenberg. Good night from me. Cheerio, and farewell,
0: and long live the new flesh.